You know, like many of you, I grew up uh, watching The Cosby Show, right? It was one of those shows that were just wonderful. Uh, it's one of those shows where you can literally watch the same episode over and over and over again and be laughing at the same joke over and over again because there's something about it that was just so appealing, right? Like when Theo got the earring, that was an unbelievable episode. Or where uh, uh, Peter and Rudy broke the blender and they ran out of the house, do you remember that? Or the Gordon Guard Trail, right? Do you remember the Gordon Guard Trail? There's just certain episodes where you can watch the same episodes over and over again and it just keeps you cracking up. There's something so appealing about that show. And I think if we were to be honest, one of the things that was so appealing about that show was Cosby himself, right? There was just something wonderful about his character. He was a, a smart guy. He was uh, funny. He was a, a good dad, a great husband, uh, just an overall good guy. And I think that's why these recent allegations against Cosby have been so hard for us to believe. Right? We don't know the full story for sure, but I think, if I were to be honest, everything in me wants to believe that it's actually not true. Because here's the thing, if it is true, I feel like it's hard to reconcile in my mind this image that I have of him from television with everything that's being said about him in the media. Because the difference between the two is sort of night and day, right? It's hard for us to know how a man who has made us laugh so much and, and, and has even taught us so much about life could have actually been living this dual life for so long. And I think that's what makes this story so hard and so shocking for us and, and difficult to believe. But you know what? I, I think that the idea of living a dual life isn't something that's sort of foreign to us, right? Fine, our stories may not be the same as that of Cosby, but I think some of us know very well what it looks like to present ourselves in a particular way, but in reality be living in a different, completely different way. Like for some of us this morning, we're sitting here in these seats, and for some of us, we have a deep problem. Some of us are like verbally abused to people. Some of us are even towards people. And the truth is, no one knows. There's no one around us. Or some of us this morning are sitting side by side with the spouse, right? We're side by side with the spouse. We're in a marriage, though, that's falling apart. It might be weeks, maybe even months, since you guys have even said anything to each other. But no one knows. No one has a clue. Or some of us are sitting here this morning, and we genuinely want to fight against sex trafficking, right? Maybe you've even participated in BTC events and, and wanted to fight against that. But maybe one look at your web browser history would tell you a completely different story. What is that? You see, I think all of these examples, whether Cosby's or our own, it's, it's sort of telling us the same thing time and time again. It's this idea that sin causes people to hide. Sin causes people to hide. It causes us to pretend. It causes us to want to cover things up. It causes us to, to put on a mask. Because even though deep down we know that there's something deeply wrong, our immediate thought is to hide. And so we hide ourselves from people. Ultimately, we hide ourselves from God. 
And you see, it's this tendency that we're going to be taking a look at this morning. This is what we're going to be discussing together this morning. We're looking at Psalm chapter 32. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, right, the, the Psalms are basically just a collection of songs that were written uh, throughout history. Now, each one of these songs may have been written by a different person. This one in particular was written by King David. Now, this King David is the same David that fought Goliath. And so there's a bunch of things that we know about this David, a bunch of good things that we know about this David. But you see, this psalm in particular is actually referring to a real dark and deceitful period in David's life. You see, we actually get some context for what this psalm is talking about in another book in the Old Testament in the first half of the Bible called 2 Samuel. Right? And so when we look at uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, we get an idea of what was this psalm written out of? What's the story behind this psalm? And we, what we find out is that this psalm was actually written during wartime. Right? And so King David, being the, the king of Israel, sends out his army to go fight a war. And in the meantime, he decides he's going to stay back in Jerusalem. Right? And so the story goes that one day he wakes up and he goes out to the rooftop of his palace and he's looking out into the palace, kind of looking out into the, the area in front of him. And when he does so, uh, he glances at a woman who's standing out there. Her name is Bathsheba. And she was standing out there bathing, right? Now, Bathsheba's husband is out fighting a war like many of the other men who are in Israel. So he's not around, right? And so David sees her. And he decides that he wants to seduce her. So what does he do? He, he welcomes her back into the palace again. And he gets her pregnant. So when he realizes what he has done, you read in the story, he's sort of scrambling to figure out what he should do now, right? How is he going to respond to what has now happened? And so he comes up with a plan. He decides he's going to write a letter to the, the head of the army and that that letter is going to go out to the, uh, to the head and what they're going to do is they're going to put Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, out so the, the plan is, you put him out in the front lines. When the opponent comes, you back off and let him die. Right? Consider that for a moment. Not only does David commit adultery, right? He decides that he's going to try to cover up his adultery by committing murder. And so the plan works. Uriah dies. And, and David tries to go back and try to live this normal life all the while knowing that he's living with these secrets, right? But he's reading, you find out that what happens is God sends this man, right? He sends this man named Nathan, who's a prophet, to come and to confront David, and that he confesses. After all of this happens, there's sort of two things that David does, right? He writes these two Psalms. He writes Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Now, when you read Psalm 51, what you realize is that that psalm was probably written almost immediately after what had happened, and almost immediately after, after he had confessed to what he has done. Because when you read that psalm, you, you see that it's, it's filled with all of this emotion. Uh, you see him pleading for forgiveness and asking God, would you please make me clean? And he's asking God, would you give me joy because I can't, I can't feel joy right now. And so as you read Psalm 51, you realize this was a real intense period for David when he was writing this psalm. Well, you see, when he gets to the middle of that psalm, in verse 13, he actually says one more thing to God, right? And he says this. He makes a promise. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Well, some people believe 
that Psalm 32, the psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning, is sort of the fulfillment of that promise that David makes uh, to God, right? Because when you read the, the heading of Psalm 32, if you were to look at your Bible right now and read the heading of it, it would say something like this. It would say, a meskill of David, right? And you see that, that word meskill, the, the root word of it just simply means to instruct. And so the idea here is David does what he does. He confesses. He writes Psalm 51. And after having some time to think through what had happened and how God had responded to him and what he had learned from God, he writes Psalm 32 as a word of instruction to other people, just like he promised God in Psalm 51. And so the question is, what does David want us to know from this Psalm 32? Well, I think that this entire psalm can be summarized in these two sentences, right? Or this one sentence, this one long sentence. I think this is what he's trying to teach us. He's saying, hiding from God will always lead to destruction. But hiding in God will always lead to deliverance. Hear that again. Uh, hiding from God will always lead to destruction, but hiding in God will always lead to deliverance. And that's what we want to consider this morning. Okay? So let's get started. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. This is what David says. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, as you read these first two verses, you realize right from the beginning that, that David doesn't waste any time, right? He doesn't sort of build up to a main point. Uh, he just jumps right in. Because consider, he's had some time now to consider what this has meant and what he wants you and I to know. And so, he goes right in and expresses this important truth right from the beginning. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, I know that I've sinned, and I want to talk about that. I really do. But more than I want to show you my sin, I really want to show you what God's forgiveness looks like. Do you hear that? More than I want to give you an, an idea of what my sin looks like, I want to give you also an idea of what God's forgiveness looks like. Because why? Because he's saying, I know what a feels like to be living in sin. I know what that feels like. But what I want you to know is that there is no greater blessedness, and that word blessedness could actually also be translated into happiness. He's saying there's no greater blessedness or happiness than to be living in God's forgiveness. He's saying I know what it looks like to live in sin, but there's no greater blessedness or no greater happiness than to be living in God's forgiveness. And so what does he do? David basically gives us three words to describe sin, and then he goes on to give us three words to describe what God's forgiveness is like. Okay, so we're going to be camping out in these first two verses for, for some time. We're going to be taking a look at what David wants us to know. And so the first word that he wants to describe for us is the word for sin. He uses the word transgression. You see, the word transgression actually talks about this active rebellion against God, right? Think about it for a moment. It's not like uh, David didn't know that adultery was bad or, or that murder wasn't bad, was bad, right? It's not like he was like, oh, oh, wait, so wait, what you're saying is I can't sleep with that man's wife? Is that what you're saying? Like there was no confusion. He wasn't ignorant or naive about any of those things. He knew exactly what he was doing. But you see, that's the point of transgression. 
the posture of transgression is this. I know what you said, but I'm going to do what I want. That's transgression. I know what you said, but I'm going to do what I want. You know, my daughter Asha, she's five years old. I feel like she gives me a good picture of what this actually looks like. Sometimes we're out playing in the front of the house, and I'll say to her, listen, don't go running out into the street, right? Now, she heard what I said. She's five. She understands what I said. But what does she do? She does what she wants, right? And so she'll run out into the street, even though she heard and understood exactly what her father had said. But you see, it's not even just a five-year-old, right? You and I know what that's like as well. We can be the same way with God. I know what you said, but I'm going to do what I want. And that's transgression. That's the idea of transgression that David's talking about here. But here's the good news, right? So he gives us the idea for sin, transgression. But he says, you know, when you rebel against God, when you transgress against God, but you do decide to come back to him, you can be forgiven. So what does that word forgiven mean? It, it literally means to lift up and carry away, right? You see, when, when we as believers, when we rebel against God, it sort of feels like walking around with a bunch of like bricks on our shoulder, right? There's this weight that's kind of uh, pushing us down, seeking to destroy us. But what David's saying here is when we, when we look to turn back to God, he forgives. And when he forgives, it's like all of that weight is lifted and carried away. Uh, let me try to give you an illustration to explain what that looks like. I don't know if you guys go to the gym, uh, you push weights. Obviously, I do, right? This doesn't happen naturally, right? <clears throat> so if you've ever been in the gym before and you're pushing weights, uh, maybe you, you have, uh, you know, you're, you're pushing weights and you have this bar, and maybe you've put way too much weight on this bar, or, or maybe you're on your last rep and you're kind of trying to push up. Ever be in a situation where you're, you're trying to push up this bar, and while you're pushing up, it sort of feels like it's pushing down at you, right? You're pushing up and you're like trying your hardest to try to lift up this weight, but as you're doing that, it's coming really close to your neck. It's like about to destroy you, potentially kill you. Well, I think the idea here is forgiveness is this idea, the same feeling that you get when your spotter comes and lifts up that weight and carries it away. You know that immediate relief that you feel, right? When this thing that was potentially going to be killing you, uh, uh, destroying you, do you know what it feels like when somebody comes and lifts up and carries away that weight? David's saying that's what forgiveness is like. You see, David is saying, listen, blessed are those who know the relief of having the crushing weight of sin removed from you. That's what blessedness is. That's what happiness is. Those who know the immediate relief of having the crushing, destroying weight of sin removed from you. you know, I think if we were to be honest, some of us are walking around here this morning with unbearable weight on our shoulders. The unbearable weight of sin on our shoulders. And if that's true, you know what God is inviting you to do? He's inviting you to come and to be forgiven. If somebody was walking around with a bunch of, of bricks on their shoulder weighing them down, it would be foolishness to try to keep walking in that way because there's relief available to you. God is saying that relief is available to you. He wants to give it to you. You don't have to carry the weight of your sin. Come and be forgiven. Have that weight lifted and carried away. 
the next word that David uses here is, uh, he says, whose sin is covered. You see, the word sin here is referring to this idea of missing the mark, right? So if you could uh, kind of picture with me sort of a dartboard, where in the, in the center of that dartboard, the bullseye, it sort of represents God's holiness or his perfect standard. And so this word sin is actually referring to our inability to reach that standard, right? So we're, we're living life, we're trying to live life uh, according to God's standard, and yet we find ourselves constantly falling short of that standard. Like, for example, right? I know that I'm called to love my wife. I know that I'm called to love my wife. And I can say that I'm actively trying to do that very thing. I'm called to love her, and I'm trying to love her, but I know that I fail to love her perfectly uh, in, in many ways, right? Uh, you can ask her, right? She, she's nodding her head like, mm-hmm. Like, she knows I have failed her in a bunch of different ways. Why? It's because I'm called to love my wife as Christ has loved the church. And so every time I have failed to do that, it reminds me of the gap that exists between my love for my wife and the love that Christ has for his bride. That no matter how hard I try, apart from God's grace, I will always fall short. And that's what sin, that word sin, is talking about. But again, good news, right? Here's the thing. When I turn to God in my sin, and I'm constantly reminded of the fact that I'm falling short, God's word, David tells us that we are covered. What does that mean? What it means is that God doesn't see me as the sinner that I am. You know, the Bible says that even though I know that I'm a person that's filled with, with flaws and failures, what the Bible says is that God, when he sees me, when I respond to him and seek forgiveness and he covers me, when he sees me, he sees his son's perfection covering me. It's sort of like being in dirty Philadelphia in the snow. Now, we can say dirty because we're from Philadelphia, but if you're not from Philadelphia, you don't say dirty, okay? But it's like being from dirty Philadelphia, in dirty Philadelphia during the snow, right? It's like when there's a, a blizzard of some sort and there's a, a foot of snow on the ground. And when you look out into dirty Philadelphia during the snow, it's one of the most beautiful things that you have ever seen in your life right? It's like a winter wonderland. It's beautiful. Everything just looks magnificent. But here's the thing. The truth is we know that underneath all of that snow, there's a bunch of trash. We know that there is a bunch of potholes and there is dirt all over the place. But when we see it, all we can see is the beauty that we see before us. And that's what covering looks like. You see, it's not like God doesn't know that we fall short. It's not like there isn't the reality that we do sin, but rather when he covers us, David is saying this. He's saying, blessed are those who are not identified by their sin, but by the righteous covering of God. You know, some of us are walking around here this morning, and I think if we're being honest, maybe you're sitting here this morning, and when you look in the mirror, the only thing that you can see are your failures and your flaws. That's the only thing that comes to your mind, because you know what you've done. You know the ways in which you have fallen short. And so it's hard for you to look at yourself, a reflection of yourself, and to say anything besides, I have fallen short. But you see, God is inviting you this morning to come 
and to find covering in Christ. So that when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. Rather, undeservingly, he identifies you by the righteousness of his son. The third word. The third word that David uses here for sin is iniquity. You see, the word iniquity sort of just summarizes who we are, right? I think what we learn in the Bible is that sin has made us into a, a crooked and a perverse people, right? If we were to be honest, we would uh, be nothing short of, of standing guilty before God. Like, like for example, if we were to just take, uh, splice out five minutes, any random five minutes of your life, right? And in those five minutes, if we were to take a moment to kind of examine what was on your mind during that five minutes, or what was on your heart during that five minutes, or what was on your tongue during those five minutes, I think chances that are that we would easily see how much sin has made us crooked and perverse. You see, it's not even just the big sins that everybody talks about. It's the fact that sin has affected every aspect of our being. It has affected our thoughts and, and our words and our deeds and our desire. And it says in the Bible that any sin, even the tiniest of sin, makes you worthy of death. You see, the wage of sin, the, the penalty of sin is death. That's the payment. So we're not even saying adultery. We're saying small things. The simple lie makes you worthy of death because the standard is God. But again, there's iniquity, but there's also good news. And here's the good news, that when we turn from our sin, David says the Lord counts no iniquity. You see, when you turn to God, God keeps no record of your wrongdoing. It's sort of like this, right? Have you ever walked into a supermarket before and you're messing around and maybe you're throwing things into the cart? No one else has ever done that before. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about either, but <clears throat> say, you're, say you're at the supermarket and you're kind of throwing, I, I've seen people do it before, uh, throwing things into the cart, right? And say you're throwing things into the cart and one time you throw this bottle of tomato sauce into the cart, but it slips and misses and falls onto the ground, right? Now, there's, there's tomato sauce all over the ground and you're looking down at it and all of a sudden you see this clerk coming around the corner and he says, listen, listen, don't worry about it, I got it, Right? And you're, you're like, really, you sure? And he's like, yep, yep, I got it. I'll take care of it. And you're sort of like, and so you pull out your wallet and you're like, listen, how much do I owe for this? And he says, don't worry, it's okay. Well, guess what? Somebody has to pay for that, for what you have done. It's just not going to be you. Right? It's not like that, that tomato, the bottle of tomato sauce didn't cost anything. It cost something. And somebody's going to pay for it. It's just not you that's going to be paying for it. Well, that's what David's saying here. He's saying, blessed are those who won't pay what they owe because what they owe has been paid. Blessed are those who won't pay what they owe because what they owe has been paid. You see, some of us are walking around here this morning. We're trying to pay back God for our wrongdoing. Right? We're, we're, we're doing all sorts of stuff to try to, to try to be good people and hoping that he forgets. Or, or, or try to do something nice for someone so that he may forget what you have done. And God is saying, that's all foolishness. God's telling you, no, all you have to do is come because it's already been paid for by Jesus. See, you've done wrong. Somebody has to pay for it. The good news is that you don't have to. 
because Jesus already has. And so the question is, how does such forgiveness happen? How does such forgiveness happen? And David says, it happens for those in whose spirit there is no deceit. It happens for those in whose spirit there is no deceit. The idea is that the blessedness or the, the happiness of forgiveness is experienced by people who are not seeking to hide. That, that's counterintuitive, right? We almost feel like happiness is found when you're hiding in sin, when no one's finding out about it. But he's saying, no, blessedness, happiness is actually found when you're not hiding in sin, when you're not looking to live a dual life. It's experienced by those who actually come to God with their sin. In fact, David tries to help us see this by giving an example from his own life, right? So verse 3, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, and through my groaning all day long. Imagine David's situation for a moment, right? He's the king of Israel. Imagine all the things that he has to take care of in any given day. Well, think about what it looks like to, to have done just some, some horrible things in your life right now. How do you remain silent in the midst of all of that? Like, how do you even go two minutes in your life without feeling the weight of that sin on your life? But you see, that's what sin does, right? It, it drives us to, to keep silent and to hide. Think about Adam and Eve, right? The two first people ever on earth, right? It says that they disobey God. And what's their automatic response? They hide, right? They're hiding from him. They're, they're trying to cover things up because they don't, want anyone to find out. Or, or if, you're a, you're, if you're here this morning and you're a parent, right? If you're a parent, if you, if you have a child in another room, right, and they're quiet for an extended period of time, uh, what does that mean? You're all laughing because you know what that means. They're up to something, right? Every parent knows it. They become silent. They hide when they have disobeyed. Now the question is, who taught them that? Who taught them that that's what they should be doing? That when they disobey, they should hide and stay silent? No one. It's, it's what we do, right? Sin leads us to hide. And the thing is, it's not even just the little kid. It's you and I as well. We can do the same thing. You know, I've been a part of many soul care groups before where, uh, where people were living in sin, right? Actively living in sin and wouldn't say a word about it. So like every week, you'll be like, hey, so how things are going with you? And they'll be like, oh, man, things are great. You know, praise God, things are going really well. And then one week, they'll come back and they'll say, can I be honest? My life is falling apart. And it's been like that for like a year, right? And you're like, what? Like every week we met up to talk about this stuff. And you haven't said a single thing. And now you say it's been a year since this has been happening? Why do we do that? Because sin causes us to hide. But what does David say? He says that when he kept silent, his bones wasted away, and he was groaning all day long. You see, hiding for the believer isn't a comfortable thing, right? David wasn't walking around sort of feeling excited like, hey, I got away with this thing, right? What David says is, no, he felt guilt. He felt the real struggle of trying to live a normal life with a lie, and he was falling apart while he was in hiding. The question is why? Why was that happening? Look at verse 4. It says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David says, Your hand 
was heavy upon me. Whose hand? God's hand, right? In other words, what David's saying here is, God wasn't allowing me to be comfortable in my sin. You see, for David, it, it would be Nathan that God sends to go and confront him. You see, for you and I, as much as we may want to ignore sin or hide from sin, God doesn't allow it. Because God doesn't allow his own children to be okay with their sin. Think about that for a moment, right? If my son was harming himself, if he was doing something to, to ruin his life, what would be the worst thing that I could do for my son? The worst thing that I could do is to say, whatever, man. You can do whatever you want. Just do whatever you want. Right? Why? If I did that, if you saw that, you would say, don't you love him? Right? Why aren't you stopping him from doing what he is doing? And the thing is, you'd be right. Because if I loved him, I would intervene. If I loved him, I would make it difficult for him to do what he is doing. Well, you see, God is no different. The scripture says that God disciplines those whom he loves, not those whom he hates. You see, if you're feeling uncomfortable in your sin, what we should be saying is, praise God. If you're feeling uncomfortable in your sin, you should say, praise God, because that's the grace of God that's intervening in your life right now. Because he loves you and he won't allow you to destroy your own life with your sin. You see, the time to worry, the time to worry is when you sin and God isn't bothering you at all. When you sin and there isn't any discomfort at all, that's when you should be alarmed. You see, God leaving you alone in the midst of your sin is the worst possible thing that he could do to you. Well, thankfully, in, in David's situation, what we see is God's heavy hand leads David to action. Look at verse 5. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, David feels the heavy hand of God on him. And he is so overcome with the, the guilt and the weight of his sin that he says that he confesses. He comes clean, right? He stops hiding. And to me, when I look at verse 5, what's unbelievable to me in this verse is that he is immediately forgiven. It almost sounds too good to be true, right? Because remember, this is an adulterer, a murderer, a liar who's going to God for forgiveness, and it's granted, right? No questions asked. In fact, if you look at this verse, you'll notice that the, the three original words for sin, right, transgression and, and sin and in, in, iniquity, all of them are actually found in this verse. Or it's being used, and it says that God forgives it all. You know, I think the most ex tangible example of this reality was actually shown to me by my wife some years ago. So, so a few years ago, I had done something to my wife, a, a particular sin against my wife. And it really was just tearing me up, right? I, I felt the guilt and the weight of what I had done to her. And I remember one night uh, feeling really convicted that I needed to go and, and confess to her, right? To stop hiding in this sin. I needed to let her know what was going on. And so I remember that night clearly. And so I walk into her room, right? And she had already been laying in bed. So I walk into the room and I go and sit right beside her in bed. And I 
And I started talking. And I remember just starting to explain what I had done to her and how horrible I had felt in doing what I had done to her and, and, and telling her that I had sinned against her and how much I needed her to forgive me. And you know what? She didn't ask any questions. Uh, she didn't ask me to elaborate. She didn't want to know my reasoning for doing what I had done. She just looked at me, right? And, and with grace and with kindness in her eyes, she looked at me and she said, I forgive you. It was that simple. And she has never felt the need to bring it up again. There's never been a time in my life where she's held it over my head. She forgave me uh, completely and immediately. And you see, for me, that was sort of an earthly reflection of a heavenly reality. David says, I confessed and God forgave my sin completely, immediately. You know, if you're looking at this verse 5, at the end of it, it will say something like Selah, right? Now, people disagree as to exactly what that means, uh, but they generally agree that it's, it's sort of a musical term. And, and what it's basically saying is for you to, to pause for a moment and to take notice of something, right? They want you to pause. And, and I, I almost want to encourage you to do the same. I want to encourage you to pause for a moment and to take notice of what we have just read. You see, if you're living in secret sin this morning, I hope this verse is an encouragement to you. I hope it encourages you to confess your sins, even right now. You don't have to tell anybody that's around you. You, you, you can talk to God directly. Tell him right now the sin that is before you. You see, if you're feeling a conviction in your heart, that's the love of God that's pursuing you. God is saying he's ready to forgive you immediately and completely. God wants you to know the worst possible decision that you could be making right now is to live in hiding from him. In fact, that's the very thing that David said in this next verse. Look at verse 6. It says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're here this morning and maybe you grew up in the church, but you're not really sure what, what you believe about God, can I, just, can I just speak directly to you for a moment? I, I think the warning that David is giving us here is an important one for you to hear, right? You could be sitting here this morning and maybe you have a bunch of questions about Jesus, and that's okay. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, and if you were to be honest, maybe you're skeptical about a lot of the things that you have heard, or maybe a lot of the things that you have been taught over the years, and that's okay. But maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you can feel the heavy hand of God on your life. What does that mean? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and maybe you can realize, and you do realize, that there's something wrong with the way that you're living. That no matter how much you try to ignore what you're thinking or what you're feeling, your conscience won't leave you alone. You know, maybe it's, it's a particular sin that is the one that's sort of haunting you. The one that keeps replaying in your mind over and over again, and you don't know what to do with that particular sin. 
or maybe it's the entirety of your life. If you look at your life, you say, you know what? I've sort of been living in indifference towards God. Or maybe I've been living in active rebellion against God. Well, if you're sitting here and, and you're feeling the discomfort of sin, you see, David wants you to know something. He wants you to know that there's a chance right now. There's a chance right now for rescue. There's a chance for you to come out of hiding. And hear this, it's not like 10 steps that you need to take. It's not some sort of self-help thing that you need to do to try to make yourself better. What he says is, all you need to do is pray. You pray and you tell God that you're tired of hiding from him. You pray and you tell God that you're tired of living in active rebellion against him. You see, the fact that you're even feeling what you're feeling right now is because God is graciously pursuing you. Hear that. What, what you're feeling right now is, is not some sort of way to pay you back. Rather, it's to bring you back. It's not God trying to beat you up. It's God trying to raise you up to life again. It's not a demonstration of judgment against you. It's a display of love and grace. Because you see, the hard truth is this, that David says. The hard truth is that there won't always be such an offer of grace and love. There won't always be an opportunity for rescue. What David's saying here is, there will, and please hear me, there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day when God will not be found. A, a day when great rushing waters will come to sweep you away. A, a day when God and the godless will be separated from each other for eternity. But you know what? Thanks be to God that at this very moment, that's not what's before you. Today, he offers you deliverance. He's inviting you to respond this morning, to not face judgment. Because here's what we need to believe, whether you're a Christian or not, right? You see, true life and true de deliverance isn't found in hiding from God. Instead, it's found in hiding in God. Look at verse 7. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts. You know, when we're confronted with the decision of whether or not we should be honest and open about our sin, I, I feel like our natural tendency is to sort of weigh the options. we got to figure out, well, what, this, what will this look like, right? And so we can say stuff like, you know, if I confess this, what will people think about me if I say this? Or we'll say, you know, if I come clean about this, I'm going to have to deal with some really hard consequences in our life. And so what do we do? We'll go back and forth and trying to figure out whether I should be uh, honest and open or whether I should continue to hide. And you see, I think the reason why we do that is because we don't see sin clearly. We don't see sin as actually being destructive in our lives. We don't see it as the waves in the ocean that are crashing up against us, trying to sweep us away, even trying to drown us. You see, what David's saying here is in the midst of such dangerous waters, God says he's our hiding place, not sin. It reminds me of a, of a hymn that we sing here often, Rock of Ages, right? 
the first line of that song is, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. What's a cleft? It's a space that's made in something by splitting something open, right? So imagine that for a moment. In the midst of crashing waters, how precious would that opening in that rock be? When the waves are trying to beat up against you and, and cause you to be swept away, how precious would that opening in that rock be for someone who's battling against sin? That's the image that David is reminding us of here. You see, the safest place for you to be in the midst of sin is hiding, but not hiding from God. It's hiding in God, in the cleft that he is to us, no matter what the cost may be. Why is that? It's not because being honest will be easier. It's not because uh, being honest won't have consequences. It's that the reason why hiding is in God is always better is because you're actually seeing sin for what it really is. And you hate your sin so much that you can't stand to be around it any longer. You see, a love for God will always translate into a hatred for sin. That will always happen. And so when that happens, you are no longer asking, I wonder if I can get away with this. Instead, what you're asking, because you love God, is how do I get away from sin? Because you're seeing sin correctly. And what does God say? God says, hide in me. He says, confess your sin to me, no matter what the cost. No matter what people will say or no matter what people will do, because I'm telling you, I can be your protection. I can preserve you from trouble. I can be your deliverance, even though sin is promising you the same thing. In fact, you get a chance to hear that, that God's promise out of his own mouth. Listen to verse 8. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You know, scholars believe that there's a, a shift that happen, happens in verse 8 here in this psalm. That all this time we've been hearing David speak to us, but some believe now we get a chance to hear God himself speaking to us. And what we see here is really comforting news, right? This is what God is saying. He's saying, now that you confessed your sin, I'm going to teach you how to continually fight against sin, right? Now, God does that in a bunch of different ways. He does that through his spirit that he gives us who resides in us and convicts us of sin and, and shows us truth. He gives, he gives us uh, the opportunity for that through his word, but I also believe that he does that through other people as well. And so Seven Mile Road, I cannot stress to you how vital and how important uh, soul care can be for you in your ongoing deliverance from sin. Remember, we don't, we don't confess our sin to one another because we are able to forgive each other, right? Only God is able to forgive. Instead, the reason why soul care is so important is because when we start living in honesty and transparency with one another, it actually helps us in our resistance or our, our tendency, rather, to, to hide when it comes to sin. It makes our life available to someone so that they can see what's going on, so that we're not living on an island somewhere. It even helps us to see things that maybe you're not even aware of in your own life. Maybe sins that are there that you're not even realizing is a problem, someone can help you see. And soul care also helps you because it helps you in, in stirring your affections towards Jesus so that as you love him more, you hate sin more as well. Listen, I'm not at all telling you that you need to be completely open 
and honest with every single person that you come across. But I guess what I'm asking is this. Are you transparent with at least one person in your life? Is there at least one person in your life that knows everything? That you're not hiding from? Is there one person in your life that can ask you anything? There's no boundaries, no border with that person. They can ask you anything. Because you see, I think it, David's saying here, if not, I think you're setting yourself up to hide, to live a dual life. Listen to what God says. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. What is he saying here? He's saying, when we do receive that sort of counsel, right? When we do receive that instruction and that, that godly advice from God, even through the mouths of people, the question he wants to ask you is, how are you responding, right? Do you find yourself rejecting the godly counsel of people? Or maybe, maybe people are even afraid to talk to you because they know how you're going to respond. They know that as soon as you say something, uh, as soon as they say something, you're going to put up your, your fists ready to fight because you're defensive all the time. And David's saying that's a dangerous place to be, a place that leads to destruction. So God says, listen, don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. Submit to God and learn from the counsel that God provides you through his word, through his Holy Spirit, and through other people. Because in doing so, you can spare yourself from the heartache and the struggle of sin. So let's consider the last instruction of this psalm. Verse 10, it says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. What a great reminder to us. You know, when we're in the midst of sin, it, it's sometimes hard for us to see sin clearly, right? Or see things clearly. We can easily convince ourselves that, that sin can make us happy or that it can provide a level of contentment for us. But you see, I feel like this song can't say it any clearer. You see, sin, hear this, sin will always lead to sorrow. Sin will always lead to sorrow. It can't help but do so. Because, you see, we weren't created to be satisfied in sin. But I'm grateful for the contrast that we see here. While sin always leads to sorrow, it says that the fullness of life is found when we are surrounded by God's steadfast love. You see, that phrase steadfast love in the Hebrew is a word hesed. And I love, this is a book called a Jesus Storybook Bible. And I love the way that Jesus Storybook Bible tries to explain this concept of hesed to little children. This is what it says. It says, Hesed is a, a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I love that. You know why? Because I think if you're living in hidden sin, only a guarantee like that can free you to be honest about your sin. If you're living in hidden sin, only a, a guarantee that even if people turn away from me, even if there are consequences for what I have done, the guarantee that God's love for me will be a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, that's the only thing that's going to free me to be honest about my sin. And it's true, brothers and sisters, God's love is a steadfast love. How do you know that for sure? 
But you see, there's no greater way that God could show his commitment to you than to destroy his own son so that you would not be destroyed by sin. You see, Christ was split open for you so that you can escape the destruction of sin by hiding in him, not hiding from him. He is our cleft. So what this means is that you can't confess a sin that's bigger or weightier or larger than the steadfast love that God has for you. His steadfast love surrounds those who trust in him. And when you realize that, this last verse of David makes so much sense. Listen to what he says. He says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Consider this, right? David starts his psalm by giving us three words for sin. He then goes on to give us three words for forgiveness. And now he finishes by giving us three words for celebration. He says, be glad. He says, rejoice. And he says, shout for joy. And I think for all of us who are here this morning, I think all of us fall into one of these three camps. For some of us, this is an opportunity for us this morning to consider and to identify the sin in your life. Where are you hiding from God? Figure out where are you living in deception toward God and toward one another. For others, now that you've identified your sin, this is an opportunity for you to repent of that sin and to experience the forgiveness that God has to offer you this morning that he really can lift up that weight, that he really can cover you, he really can count no sin against you any longer. And still for others this morning, this is an opportunity for you to celebrate. You have gone to God for forgiveness, and he has forgiven you. And you sit here this morning surrounded by the steadfast love of God. Brothers and sisters, Hiding from God will always lead to destruction, but hiding in God will always lead to deliverance. Let's pray.